Well, this evening we're addressing our attention to the subject of the establishment of the kingdom. And I refer, of course, to that that was promised by Isaiah in Isaiah, the second chapter, which we read a few, uh, from a moment ago. In this place, we hear Isaiah predicting, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Now whatever the mountain of the Lord's house may be as described in this passage of scripture, when Isaiah spoke this some 500 years before Christ, it was yet future. It was something that was in the future and coming. And uh, he said it shall come to pass. So the question we want to consider tonight is, what is the Lord's house as spoken here? The answer, of course, is found in the second chapter of Daniel. There in this place we hear in Daniel 2 and verse 35 that the prophet said, Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now in the interpretation of this vision given by Daniel in Daniel 2 and 44, he said, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now I'd like to point out that when he said the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. The mountain, of course, is simply a symbol for a kingdom. And then he said it shall be exalted above the hills. Now hills, if the mountain is a kingdom, the hills would be lesser governments, wouldn't it? And so this is what he's talking about. But what is the Lord's house? He said the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills. Well, we find what the Lord's house is in 1 Timothy, the third chapter and verse 15, where the apostle Paul writes to the young preacher and he said, that if I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the Lord's house is simply the church. This is a prediction of the church and when it will be established and what its purpose may be. Now Daniel said, in the days of these kings, this tells us the time when the kingdom or the church is to be established. But what kings is he talking about? We have to remember that this was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. That's nothing uncommon. We all have dreams. Uh, this dream was a very important dream. It was a dream that was given him, no doubt, by God. And the problem was that when he woke up the next morning, he couldn't remember the dream. He said, the thing has left me. 
Have you ever had an experience like that? Sure you have. You've had a dream that seemed so real and so vivid, but then the next morning, you couldn't even remember the details of it. Well, that's the fix that Nebuchadnezzar was in. And so he called for his wise men and his soothsayers and his Chaldeans, and they all came in. And they, he said, I have had a dream, and I want you to give me the interpretation of it. They said, all right, you tell us the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. Oh, no, he said, that's just the problem. Paraphrasing his words, of course. He said, I, the, the thing has left me. I don't know what the dream is. But unless you tell me, you're going to be cutting pieces, and I'm going to make your houses a dunghill. On the other hand, if you tell me the dream, and you give me the interpretation, you're going to get all kinds of rewards. And they said, well, there's not a man on earth that can tell you the dream and then give you the interpretation. That's not the way it works. You tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation thereof. Oh, he said, you're just stalling for time. And he said, if you don't come up with this dream, all of you are going to be killed. And uh, even though they protested, that was his decree. So he was rounding up all of the soothsayers and the magicians and the uh, Chaldeans to kill them. And he sent for Daniel and uh, the, the boys that were with him from Judea. And uh, Daniel said, you give me a little time and I'll tell the dream and I'll tell the interpretation of it. And so, of course, he called upon God to provide that interpretation. And during the night, God gave to Daniel the dream and the interpretation thereof. And now we're ready to see what that dream and what that interpretation was. In verse 31, this is the thing that he said to Nebuchadnezzar. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Now, the word king, of course, refers to a dynasty of kings in each one. But now let's read the interpretation. He said, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. I like to point out that the Bible says God gave it to him. Sometimes we think that we have a hand in the affairs of men. But God rules in the kingdoms of men. And he said, God gave you this kingdom. And uh, wheresoever the children of men dwell, 
the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. This is a significant statement. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold of that great image that he saw in his vision. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now notice, if you will, the four things that he describes here. Uh, the head of gold he described as being King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, that part of the kingdom, uh, that part of uh, the, the empire. And then he said that there was silver, and then there was the brass. And then there was the iron and part of iron and part of clay later on. We're going to see that these represent the four great world empires known to man. And this is very easily done because when he said, Nebuchadnezzar, thou art that head of gold, he identified that as the Babylonian kingdom, one of the great world empires. You remember in the study of history, no doubt, that uh, these four universal dynasties, Babylonia was the first, and then we have no trouble locating the others. Daniel 8 tells us who they are. In Daniel the 8th chapter and verse 20, he said, The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. You remember by reading God's word and history that the Babylonian kingdom was uh, that which passed away because the Medes and the Persians uh, came upon it. So that Median kingdom was that second kingdom. Uh, I should say was uh, the, the uh, kingdom. And then the silver, of course, was that which uh, represented uh, Greece. Uh, we can notice then that uh, in, this, in this way, the, the, the four kingdoms are described. Now I believe I have this uh, mixed up just a little bit here. Let's read again what he says. He said, 
the uh, third kingdom was a kingdom of brass, and it shall bear rule over all the earth. That uh, silver kingdom represented uh, the Macedonian Empire, of which Alexander, you remember, was the great, was the ruler. Alexander had conquered all of the known world, and uh, he was ruler of it all. And when Alexander died, uh, he had uh, no heir no, to leave it to. He had only one son who was an incompetent, and uh, his, his generals took over the kingdom. And that, when he said, that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. So since we have noticed the Medo-Persian and the... Uh, and the uh, Macedonian or the Grecian kingdom, that leaves only one to be described. And of course, that was the Roman kingdom. It is described so minutely that it's unmistakable. It first comes as iron, the Roman kingdom breaking everything in its power, in its way. And later, a spirit of moderation is introduced, and he says the clay begins to mingle with the iron. This is in the feet of that great image, the iron and the miry clay. But while they mingle, they will not cleave together. And Daniel 2 and verse 43 says, Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So now we have described these kingdoms as the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and finally the Roman. Those are the only four world empires. The iron of this Roman kingdom became mingled with clay, and of course that produced a weakness. Now Gibbon says, in the second century of the Christian era, the empire of Rome comprehended the fairest part of the earth and the most civilized portions of mankind. Gibbon wrote the history of the Roman Empire. And he said again, the principal conquests of the Romans were achieved under the Republic. And the emperors, for the most part, were satisfied with preserving those dominions which had been acquired by the policy of the Senate the active emulation of the, count, uh, the consuls, and the martial enthusiasm of the people. The seven first centuries were filled with rapid succession of triumphs, but it was reserved for Augustus to relinquish the ambitious design of subduing the whole earth and to introduce a spirit of moderation into the public councils. Uh, in these two quotations that I have read from Gibbon, the historian, we learned that the Roman Empire was the kind of a thing that broke everything in its path. Some of our modern scholars have said that the Roman army was absolutely invincible in its force. And uh, it broke other nations to pieces. And that was the Republic that did that. Hence the iron marks the Roman Empire in its Republican form of government. But then there comes the clay. What about the clay? He says the kings mentioned mingle themselves with the seed of men. And it was this seed of men to which they would not cleave. 
Now, if you will notice, the Romans changed from the republican form of government to a kingdom, but they never did abolish the senate. Therefore, they retained a part of the republic, the part that was iron, and that was mingled with the senate. Daniel said, there shall be in it the strength of the iron. The emperors, the kings, with the senate. Did they cleave together? I submit that they did not. Uh, Gibbon, the historian of Rome, says, the words of the assassin sunk deep into the mind of Commodus and left an indelible impression of fear and hatred against the whole body of the Senate. Believe we can see that there was strife and animosity between the Senate and those who represented the uh, king. Again, from Gibbon, he said, the tyrant's rage after having shed the noblest blood of the Senate at last recoiled on the principal instrument of his cruelty. That's from page 106 of Gibbon's History of the Roman Empire. Now I could read many more quotations from Gibbon's tonight to show that the Roman emperors were the kings who mingled themselves with the seed of men but would not cleave one to another. Hence the emperors were the clay of the image while the senate was the iron. And I'm mentioning all of this tonight because that shows the age of the world when God was to set up his kingdom. He said, in the days of these kings, that is the Roman kings, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now that was the Roman Caesars. And that was during the time when the kingdom would be established. Now I'd like to point out that it was the mission of John the Baptist to make the way of the Lord plain. That was his mission. And so we're not surprised to read in Matthew, the third chapter and verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand means to cause to approach, uh, to uh, draw near. It hadn't come, but he said it's at hand. It was nigh. It was very near. Again, we hear Jesus coming upon the scene. Jesus was born uh, some six months after John the Baptist was born. And uh, John was his forerunner, the one who prepared his way. And Jesus came upon the scene, and the disciples asked him, uh, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. So at that point in time, Jesus was on the scene, but his kingdom had not yet come. We come on down when Jesus came with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And there at Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Jeremiah, or Elias, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, Whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter, you remember, was the outspoken one, and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus pronounced the benediction of heaven upon him. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So now Jesus is talking in terms of the church or the kingdom. And he said, I will build, that's future tense. Again in Matthew 18 and 3, we hear Jesus saying to his quarreling disciples as he sat a little child down in the midst of them, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom. Again, the apostles were not in the kingdom at that point in time. Again in Luke 22 and verse 18, just before Jesus was betrayed, he was observing the last supper with his disciples. And he said in Luke 22 and verse 18, Verily I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So here we are now on the last night of our Lord's life upon this earth. And he's saying the kingdom shall come. Future tense. You remember that Jesus was crucified the next day and placed in Joseph's new tomb. And on the Sabbath day, he slept in the darkness and the gloom of that tomb. And on the third day, he came forth with beams of healing in his wings to dispel the darkness and gloom of Calvary and the grave and to give man a view of that land that's over yonder beyond death's tide. And he stood over there on the mountain and gave the great commission and commissioned his disciples. He spent 40 days showing himself by many infallible proofs that he was indeed alive. He appeared to over 500 brethren at one time, we're told by Paul in 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And finally, when those 40 days were over, he led them out to Mount Olivet, Olivet of such sweet and tender memories. And there he began to talk to them in terms uh, about uh, their duty, no doubt. And one of the disciples said to him, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. In other words, they understood the kingdom hasn't come. And Jesus informed them it hasn't come. You have the wrong idea of it, but you'll gain the right idea when the Holy Spirit comes. Now in the vision of Daniel, in Daniel the seventh chapter, we hear Daniel explaining what happened. You remember how that Jesus arose he began to rise up into the air and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they stood looking up into the heavens where Jesus had gone, we hear him saying, the angel saying, ye men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? For this same Jesus which you have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Jesus left. But we have in the 7th chapter of, of Daniel, 
a picture from God's viewpoint. Daniel said in Daniel 7 and 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. That could be none other than God Himself. And they brought Him near before Him, and there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So there is God's picture of what happened when Jesus ascended to heaven. You remember that some ten days later, the disciples were there in the city of Jerusalem, all with one accord in one place, and we're going to see what happened. Incidentally, coming from the other angle, we see that John, the, the uh, one to whom the revelation was given, sometimes people call him the revelator, but actually Jesus was the revelator. John was the, the revelatee, I guess you could say. And John said, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So John was in the kingdom, wasn't he? Now, let's notice the definitions of the word church and kingdom. Some people don't see how that could be the same institution. But I submit that it is because the church comes from a word that means the called out. And when we are members of the church, we're called out of the world. It's an assembly. It's an assemblage of those who are saved. The church of Christ would be those who were called out by Him. Now, in the kingdom, that describes it from the standpoint that uh, the Christ is King. Now, in order to have a kingdom, there are four things that are necessary. You have to have a king. You have to have subjects. You have to have laws, and you have to have a territory. Now, Jesus may have had subjects and a law while he's on earth, but he had no territory. But in Matthew 28 and 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. John was in the kingdom, so it had to come after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And before... John, who gave the book of Revelation, got into it. So now let's come backward to the, to the time of the kingdom's establishment. Notice we have said over here, even at Jesus' ascension, at his crucifixion, his ascension into heaven, the kingdom had not yet come because the disciples are asking, Lord, will thou at this time restore unto us uh, the kingdom unto Israel? So the kingdom hadn't come at that point. Yet over here, when John wrote the book of Revelation in A.D. 96, we find John saying that he was in the kingdom. So somewhere in this period of time, the kingdom had to come and be established. We're going to find out from God's Word when that happened. Again, in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, we hear Jesus, uh, we hear uh, the Apostle Paul saying, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Uh, now, that means that 
when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians somewhere along here, that uh, the kingdom at that time was in existence. Also, let's see if we can find another scripture. Again, in Acts, uh, the second chapter in verse 47, you remember that on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Bible says in Acts 2.47, that having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So this was some 10 days after Jesus' ascension into heaven, we find people being added to the church. So if the Lord added to the church daily, it's conclusive that the church at this point in time had an existence. Now it couldn't have been set up, nor it couldn't have, the kingdom couldn't have been established later than the day of Pentecost, but we've learned that only 10 days before Pentecost, it hadn't been established. Now let's notice again in Mark the ninth chapter and verse 1. Here Jesus told his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. This is before the cross when Jesus was here upon the earth. Now notice what he said. He said, There's going to be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom come with power. <coughs> the old time gospel preacher said, you know, if we can find out when the power came, we can find out when the kingdom came. And of course, if we can find out that, then we know what time that was. All right, let's try again. In Acts 1 and verse 8, we hear Jesus saying to the disciples just before he ascended, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Look at here. If we can find out when the Holy Ghost came, we can find out when the power came. If we can find out when the power came, we can find out when the kingdom came, can't we? Can we find out when the Holy Ghost came? Oh, I believe we can. Turn over there to the second chapter of Acts and verse 1, where the Bible says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the place where they were sitting. There appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we found out that the Holy Ghost came on the day of Pentecost. We know it was about 9 o'clock in the morning from the context of that passage. Well, when the Holy Ghost came, the power came, and when the power came... That's when the kingdom came. We've pinpointed the time that the kingdom or the church of our Lord was established. I'd like to point out that that day Jesus' rule on earth began. The mountain of the Lord's house was there and then established in the highest government on earth in the top of the mountains and the God of heaven set up that kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That was a wonderful occasion that day because on that day it it energized the apostles. And we hear the apostle Peter standing up and being the spokesman of the hour, if you will. He preached a wonderful sermon that day in which he set forth the fact that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the anointed one of God, the one that the prophets spoke about. And he said that it wasn't David that he was talking about when he said over there, Thou will not suffer thine holy one to see corruption, uh, nor his flesh to see corruption. He said that referred to Christ. And uh, then he came down to the climax of his sermon down there in verse 36 when he said, 
let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now I want to tell you this. When that was spoken, that was like a hammer breaking those old stony hearts into pieces because they realized they'd crucified God's Son. They'd killed the Lord of glory. And they began to cry out and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter standing up with the eleven said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, to them that are far, uh, to, to your children, to them that are far off, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. The Bible says they that glad to receive his word were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Then we read down there in verse 47, it says, Having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Wasn't that a wonderful occasion? In Ephesians, the first chapter, in verse 20, we hear Paul saying, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has uh, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now there's a question. When was Jesus set at God's right hand as Paul spoke of there in Ephesians the first chapter? Well, Acts 2 and verse 33 says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. That occasion was that great and notable day of the Lord. Isaiah said it shall come to pass in the last days. When? Acts 2.17 It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. You know what Peter said? This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. It was the last days. Zechariah 1 and 16 said, Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts. And a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. In Luke 24 and verse 46, Jesus said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Jesus told His disciples that the preaching of the gospel was to begin at Jerusalem. And all the events that we've mentioned here tonight took place there also. So this strengthens the whole of what we have said. Acts 11 and verse 18 says that Peter, in recounting his mission to the Gentiles over there at the house of Cornelius, said, As I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. 
That was the beginning of the church, the beginning of the reign of Jesus. Since the apostles received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it follows that the day of Pentecost is the day that the mountain of the Lord's house was established. Now, that happened about 9 o'clock in the morning. You remember Peter said, uh, this is the third hour of the day. That was uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so we have established here tonight that the church that Jesus built, that kingdom that was prophesied by Isaiah and by Daniel and by those prophets of the Old Testament, had its inception, its beginning, shortly after Jesus' crucifixion upon the cross, some 53 uh, days after He was crucified. And uh, it has continued since that time. Now the Lord willing, tomorrow night we're going to trace the journey of the church down through the ages as briefly as we can in the amount of time that is allotted to us. But tonight, I'm through with this lesson. And I hope that uh, in this uh, study that we've had tonight, as brief as it is, that you've been able to catch a glimpse of that kingdom that shall never pass away, shall never be destroyed, that Daniel and Isaiah spoke about. Here's the wonderful thing about this tonight. You and I can be members of that church, that kingdom. Jesus said, you know, to his disciples, he said, I appointed you a kingdom a table in my kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Jesus has a kingdom, and that kingdom is his church. He said to Peter, I'm going to build my church, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So we understand then the church and the kingdom describe that institution that Jesus promised to build and that the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament. And here's the wonderful part. You and I can have a part in that great kingdom. And the way that we do that is by casting off all man-made opinions and ideas and simply taking God at His Word. Now on that day of Pentecost, when people first became members of it, they became believers in Jesus Christ. They'd heard Peter's matchless sermon, and they realized their guilt and their distance from God. And so Peter told them to do the next thing, which is to repent and uh, be baptized. And the Bible says, they that glad to receive his word were baptized. Now here's a question I want you to consider very uh, carefully tonight. If the Lord added people to the church back in Bible times, his church, who simply did what Peter said, wouldn't the Lord add you to the same institution if you did the same things they did? Sure he would, because the Bible says in Acts the 10th chapter, and I believe it's verse 43, that God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of persons in every nation. He that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So that means that, that you can be a member of that church without ever joining any human denomination you can yield obedience to the gospel of Christ and the Lord will add you to his church just like he did those back there on the day of Pentecost. That's a wonderful and great blessing. We don't have to pass and review before some board of ecclesiastics and be voted on. We don't have to join it as though we were joining some human institution. We obey the gospel. 
The Lord saves us from our sins. He adds us to the church. He writes our names in His Lamb's book of life. And we have that hope of life beyond this veil of tears. I may be speaking to someone tonight who would walk right down the aisle, make that good confession, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, be immersed in water in the name of the sacred three and become a member of that church that you read about in the Bible. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.